Again, good morning, brothers, sisters, and friends. I hope that you all are, are doing well. And again, it is always uh, really good to see you all. We are in the third part of our sermon series this morning on the diaconate. Uh, I didn't add a subtitle earlier, so I'm, but I'm going to add one today. So the subtitle to the diaconate, the ministry of deacons for the body of Christ. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Um, and this morning, we're going to look in God's Word in just a few moments, and you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in a moment in verse 8. If you've missed any of these messages so far or, or, or would like to listen to them again, remember that they are up on our website, um, and they will continue to, uh, to, to be so until the internet turns against us. Um, and I encourage you to listen to them, especially if you are a, a church member or you're petitioning or want to petition to become a church member. Um, these are highly encouraged for you to, to listen to um, because a part of us, um, we want you to understand and know what we believe about deacons, among so many other things. I told uh, the individuals at the discovering class on Sunday night to I highly encourage you to listen to the series on the website on the church gives you a good foundation on what we believe about the, uh, the church. This series, as I also have said, is going to be the catalyst by which our church will be installing deacons to formally serve the church, which is why I'm encouraging you to make sure you know what we are talking about when we say deacons here at Sovereign Grace Church. The first question that we asked in the first two messages was who serves or who deacons, because that's what the word means, means to serve. So who deacons the church? And there are three answers to that question. In our first week, when we're introducing the series, we encountered two of those. And that is, number one, the church deacons or serves the church. And number two, the elders, deacon, or serve the church. Please go back and listen so you understand what that means. What that means for the church members to deacon the church members and the elders to deacon the church. And then last week, I gave the final answer to that question of who serves the church, and that is, you guessed it, the deacons. You can go back and listen to where I gave you all the scriptural evidence last week on where the office of deacon comes from theologically, where the office of deacon comes from, and then historically, we looked at Acts chapter 6 on how, in the Lord's wisdom, through this potential disaster in the church, God gave wisdom to the apostles, as we presume through much prayer, God gave wisdom to them to, pick, to tell the church to pick seven good men to do the work of a deacon to serve the church in this particular area. And from there, we saw the five purposes of a deacon. Namely, number one, deacons serve tables. Meaning deacons meet the physical needs of the church. Figuratively and literally, they are known to be those who serve tables. We know that God cares for the poor. We know that God cares for the needy among us and to all of those who come seeking assistance from the Lord. The deacon's role in serving tables shall be to work and to meet those needs so that there is nothing that will hinder the joy of the gospel for anyone. That is the role of a deacon. Number two, we see deacons are qualified. We're going to talk about that much today, so we'll go to number three, and that is deacons prioritize the preaching of the word. The whole point of appointing these men in Acts chapter 6 was so that, first and foremost, that the word of God would be preached freely, without distraction or busyness, right? So it was to free up the apostles, or now in the church, the elders, to meet the needs of the body of Christ, to free them up from distractions of busyness. The needs and sufferings of man, the poor, are important to God. We see that throughout the Scripture. 
And we want to care much for you in those times of need and for them in times of need. But a priority of a deacon is always the preaching of God's word, meaning we do not prioritize what is temporal over what is eternal. The word of God is eternal. Food is temporal. And to promote those or to prioritize the temporal over the eternal would be a great sin on our part and travesty. So a deacon sets at the work set before them is to allow the elders to freely preach and pray while they are serving tables so that all, again, may receive the blessings of the real spiritual food. And fourth, deacons are to be shock absorbers. They serve as shock absorbers. They solve problems. They heal wounds. They create unity and thus absorb the tension in the church just like they did in Acts chapter 6, for these things pleased the body because it was their job. And so deacons do not create shock. They do not create tension. They ease it. They absorb it. And lastly, deacons are to be appointed and set apart. Again, all of these things we talked to at much length last week. I encourage you to listen to, those, to that message if you missed. This morning, we are going to ask another question. I like asking questions. It kind of helps me all week long try to answer this great big question that I challenge myself with. And the question that I've chose for us to ask this morning in relationship to the, to the diaconate is that who can serve? Who can serve? Well, we answered that somewhat earlier, but in particular, now we are asking in relationship to the diaconate, the deacons, who can serve in the office of deacon? Are there certain qualifications or standards for anyone to serve? Who can serve? Who is qualified? And this is a very important question. And as we will see today, this is a question that as a church, if we are going to have deacons, then you as church members better be asking yourself the question, who is qualified? Who can serve as a deacon? I can tell you that this is one of the most important questions that you could ask yourself as a church member. If the standards or the qualifications can just be made up, can be based upon our own thoughts, our own desires, or our own cultural understandings of, of our own standards, or maybe the kind of talents and gifts that we want a man to serve in certain areas, then if those are the standards, if those are the qualifications, if that's the, the, the general foundation from where that criteria comes from, then we will pick those whom we want to and whom we would like. However, however, we know as the church, it's in our documents, it's in what we believe, it's what we say, it's what we sing, it's what we confess, is that God's word has spoken. And the king over his church has spoken. He has given us his scripture, let me illustrate this to you. Suppose there is a king, and you know all the way back, right? And kings, when they wore crowns, and, and there were castles and such, and I don't know, maybe they had jesters, who knows. They had all these people around them, and there's this king. He's sitting in his castle, and he's on his throne. And this king, as kings do, is putting together an army. The king is putting together an army, and in the organization of this army, the king sets the standard or declares that there will be captains to lead in this army. And these captains will be in charge to, to execute all the commands and the will of the king. All that the king says and tells the army to do, the captains have the role to delegate that to their other those that are under them. 
and to execute those commands accordingly. That's the role of the king. Are the role of the king to the captains. But as we also know that armies do not march only by commands alone or simply devotion alone, but armies march on their stomachs. Armies have massive needs for supplies and logistics. And so this wise king knows that he not only needs captains, but he has also declared that there would be another group to make sure that the army had everything that they needed for war. And he called them quartermasters. Now they would make sure the army had their proper uniforms and their shoes and their weapons and their tents, daily rations of food, and so that the army then can do what? Could properly execute the commands from the captains that was coming from the king. And so do you see what I mean? That there needs to be captains and quartermasters. And in the king's army, let me ask you this, in the king's army, does the king then, does the king have the right to set the standards for who could be captain or a quartermaster? Answer the question. Can the king, does the king have the right to set the standards for the captains or the quartermasters? Thank you, brother in the back. He's like, yes, absolutely, the king has that right. We all should be saying yes. And so the king, if the king says that captains had to be at least 30 years old, a captain had to be at least 30 years old, a captain had to be at least six foot tall. Sorry, John. Or anyone else that's under six feet, right? Had to be six feet tall. Had to be a leader. Had to be over 30 years old. Had to be an experienced combat veteran. Had to be honorable. Had to have integrity. Had to be an experienced leader and devoted to the king, and completely devoted to the authority of the king. Those are good standards. And is the king right to set such standards? Whether we agree with them or not, if you're six foot tall or not, can we say that the king has the right to set such standards? Do you all agree again? Amen. Thank you, Bill. Anyone else? Yes. Can the king not say that quartermasters had to be they have to be at least 220 pounds. They also have to be at least five foot six or above. They have to have at least 10 years experience, which by the way takes me out of the running because I do not weigh 220 pounds. They have to have at least 10 years of experience. They have to demonstrate the ability to get things done on time. They had to be reliable because again, an army does not march on just commands and devotion alone, but on their stomachs. Does the king, again, so you're going to answer this question, ready? Let's try to do it the first time. Does the king have the right to make such standards upon the quartermasters? Yes. Amen. Yes. So he has that right. And the reason is, you all know, because he's king. And this king is sovereign. And this army is the king's. Now this king, being a good king that he is, he looks at his army and he tells them, these are the standards by which you are to pick your captains and by which you are to pick your quartermasters, and you are to take these qualifications and the standards and guidelines that I have set, and you are going to pick your captains and you are going to pick your quartermasters. And if this army loves their king, and if this army is devoted and committed to their king, what will they do? Well, they will pick according to the guidelines and standards that the, of, of the king. And so what if the army or the army decided to pick according to their own standards or even something lesser? I mean, maybe, maybe they look at a particular man and they say, oh, he, he looks like he's a good leader. He, he, he looked good in uniform. Man, look at him on that horse. That looks like a good leader. He, he's only been in the service for 10 years, and he's, he's 29 years old. He's not, he's not 30. He hasn't seen combat experience, but man, look at him on that horse. That saddle looks good. And of course, the king is good. He'll understand. 
the king, why would we be so picky? Why would we be, hear, my, hear me on this, this word, legalistic, to be so picky? And, but I tell you that if an army, if an army loves their king, they will pick their captains and their quartermasters upon the standards of the king. Because this king knows them. He knows what's best, and he knows that they are to keep his standards. And so do you hear what I'm saying? Do, do you get this illustration? King Jesus has an army. King Jesus has an army. His army is the church. And to his church, he has given two offices of captains and quartermasters to his church, and he has called them elders and deacons. They do not set the rules. They do not make up the standards, but they only administer the policies and standards and qualifications of the sovereign king who has spoken. The king has given us guidelines as the army to pick our captains and quartermasters, and we call them qualifications from the scripture. Brothers and sisters, the king has told us who can serve according to his standards. So let's look now to 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is Christ Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. If we look at 1 Timothy 3, as we've just read, that is the specific scripture dealing with the qualifications of the office of deacon. Right before that, and where I began reading, mistakenly, it was verses 1 through 7, is the qualifications of an elder. And besides Acts chapter 6, this is the only passage specifically pertaining to the qualifications of a deacon. That's not the same for elders. There's other places for elders. First Timothy chapter 5, Titus chapter 1. But this is by far enough for us to understand the qualifications of a deacon. But these don't stand on, them, on their own. If we, if we zoom out just a little bit and we look at the, the big picture of the Scripture, we, we see that there is a general tone from the Scripture that shows us the same disposition of the heart of a Christian and the church comes, or is, that is listed also in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, when the, when the mother of the sons of Zebedee petitioned Jesus, she comes to Jesus to honor her sons, to allow them to sit on his right and on his left. That's James, that's John. And Jesus pretty much answers the question like this. He pretty much says this. He says, if they're ready to die and lose everything, then come on. But afterwards, the disciples become angry. They become angry and indignant toward their brothers, toward James and between James and John, and, and Jesus, Jesus sees this and knows this, and he corrects his disciples in their anger, and he says this, because he thinks that these, the disciples think that James and John, they want power, they want authority, and maybe they do, but Jesus corrects them and says this, he says, you know 
The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and great ones exercise authority over them. Meaning this, he's saying literally, the authority that Jesus is referring to in this verse is, is the one that presses upon people. It's, a, it's the authority that says, I'm the mayor, and you will sit down, and you will shut up, and you will listen to me. That's the kind of a pressing, tyrannical authority of the Gentiles that lords over them. It's the kind of authority we're seeing these days, isn't it? The authority that, that forgets that their power comes from the people. Before I start preaching the Constitution, we'll move on. But it's tyrannical. It's abusive. It's for their own gain. But Jesus says in verse 26, he says, It shall not be so among you. But whosoever would be great among you must be your servant. Must what? Be your deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, your doulos, your slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that tyrannical authoritarians need not apply. This is not your place. This is not your table. Because the disposition of a Christian, the disposition of the church, her elders, her deacons, her church members, the disposition is a servant. Is a servant. Because Christ himself is our example and who among any of us can put ourselves over Christ? First Corinthians 13, I'll give you another example. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not loved, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I teach, and if I have the voice of an angel, if I can sing like an angel, if I have the greatest of talents and skills of oratory, the slickest illustrations, the smartest of wit, the best-looking clothes, the best-looking beard, goatee, whatever, whatever makes you look good before the world. But if I have not loved, then to the church they should be an, what? A noisy gong, which means annoying, <laughs> agonizing. I don't know about you, but them slick dudes on TV are agonizing to me. Not just infuriating, but agonizing. Because they are noisy gong. Gong, 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 gong. Yeah, how, I mean, how long can we take that for? And if I have prophetic powers and understanding and all mysteries of knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not loved, I am nothing. So what's the disposition of the church? Is love. Is love. The Beatitudes show us the dis disposition to be meek and to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful and peacemakers. Galatians chapter 5, verse 23 to 23, tells us that we are to have the disp disposition of the fruits of the spirits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fear, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and of course, self-control. But as we have already read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that the general disposition, the general qualities that we see throughout Scripture, in particular to the elders and to the deacons, are specifically listed and really are not from very far off of any of those dispositions. And so specifically we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that there are four main qualifications of a deacon. Number one, deacons are dignified. We started off, well not started off, we talked about in Acts chapter 6 last week, but there was a quality there of these seven good men. That they are to be of good repute, which means of good character and respectable. 
of good conduct and that, that resembles Jesus Christ. They are to be full of the Spirit. They are to be known for submitting their lives to the Spirit's guidance. They are to be full of wisdom, which is having the ability to solve the physical problems of problems and needs that may come and may arise and have discernment and, and insight according to the Word of God so that they would have sound judgment when interacting with people. Three amazing qualifications there from Acts chapter 6. And I think here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see the Apostle Paul establishing to Pastor Timothy, who is in Ephesus, and to all churches everywhere, and expanded and clarified qualifications for deacons. And of course, that first one I just read is that deacons are to be dignified, verse 8. Which literally means that they are to be worth, worth, worthy of respect. They are to be worthy of respect, which again seems like it's pointing right back to Acts chapter 6 and the requirements. To, to be dignified, brothers and sisters, is to have the sort of life that demands respect. I did not say demanding respect. I said, but a sort of life that demands respect. And to help us understand what that exactly means, Paul explains it with three negatives. The first is to not be double-tongued. Or two-faced, if you want to say it that way. Or, or saying one thing, but meaning another. Or saying something to someone, but then saying something different to another and then to another. We've all met people like that, haven't we? We've all dealt with people like that. And is that easy to deal with? Is that easy to work with? Is that a good situation to deal with those kind of people? And you see, a deacon is going to have countless interactions with people. They are going to be confronted with people who are in, in need. They're going to be confronted with people who are hurt. They're going to be confronted with people who are going to be upset. And some of them might even complain to the deacon. They will complain. And, and yet, in these kinds of situations, a deacon must be able to speak compassionately the truth while yet remaining on guard on guard themselves to keep their yeses to be yes and their noes to be no. They are not to be gossips. They are not to be slanderers, nor tolerate those that do. If they are not the problem, or if they are not the solution, then the deacon will not speak about the situation or to the situation, but only give guide, guide wisely and biblically on how to handle a situation. And this means essentially this one, I think, very important thing is that the deacon must be trustworthy. Must be trustworthy. Someone that you can trust. Second, they are not to be addicted to much wine, meaning they are to have self-control in their appetites. So not only is this prohibiting drunkenness, right, the overindulgence to, to alcohol, but also to anything else there that would enslave their hearts and their minds. And notice that this doesn't say that deacons must not drink any wine so that we're not putting an unnecessary burden on anyone or them but the disqualification here is drunkenness and addictions. A deacon's role is to work to set people free from their burdens, aren't they? To help alleviate those things that are burdening and weighing down a fellow believer, a church member. And they're working to set them free. So how can they themselves be enslaved if they are to help others? And third, the third negative is that they are not to be greedy for dishonest gain, which, yes, has to do with money. Do you know what one of the most obvious marks of a false teacher is? It's this right here. It's the desire for greed and dishonest gain. But this ought not to be the case for the king's quartermasters in Jesus' army, is it? When it comes to money, if they are 
deceived, if they are deceptive with money, if they are cutting corners, if they are obsessing over money, then that man is disqualified from service. Inevitably, again, money will be a part of the work of deacons and the diaconate service. And those who will have charge over it at certain places of the ministries, they must be of highest integrity. And as deacons who are acting as shock absorbers, again, they're going to be asked and called upon to solve tough, tough problems and get into difficult situations that might involve intimate matters of a person's life, including their finances. And might even get involved in some of our lives if needed. Then I think we would all agree wholeheartedly then with Scripture that we would want a man who is trustworthy, wouldn't we? We want a man who is dignified. We want someone who is going to be honorable in all situations. Even if the resolution that they come up with is not what we wanted, it is always better off having to work with someone who is sincere and dignified in handling a situation than not. So first qualification is that a deacon is to be dignified. Number two, second qualification is that a deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith, verse 9. We've already said that deacons serve tables. They serve tables, so we kind of compared them last week to a waiter or a, or a waitress, right, who, who, who serves us food. And sometimes you might go to a restaurant and you might ask the waiter, what's the best thing on the menu? If, if I don't like seafood and I don't like Brussels sprouts or some of these things, what would you pick to be the best thing on the menu? And one would expect in asking that question to a good waiter or waitress, they would be able to answer that question. And especially if you tell them, I am really hungry. I don't care what it costs. I am very hungry. You know, they will get you something that you want. They'll get you on. And why? Because they know their menu. They, they know their menu. They should be able to show us and tell us what the best meal on the menu is. And again, deacons are, are no different in this respect. And again, we also need to be careful that it would be tempting to appoint men who are more skilled and gifted in certain areas rather than having a firm grip on the word of God. We might begin to believe that after all, deacons, if they are doers and table servers then, and, and not teachers, then why do they need to know these things? But again, the king has said that a deacon is to hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, which means three things. I think it means this. First, there must be some cognitive adherence to understanding the gospel. Meaning they must be able to accurately give an defense for the hope that is in them. They are to firmly have an ability to correctly, correctly articulate the gospel. The understanding the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They must understand, the, I believe, the, the narrative of the Bible. Maybe not every little detail, of course, but understand the, the grand narrative of the Bible and the purpose of the Bible and the authority of the Bible and the doctrine of God and the Trinity. These, these things that are all, should be very basic to any one of us. So the cognitive adherence to the, to the Word of God. Second, they must have experienced this truth by faith alone and give personal witness upon Christ alone for their salvation. Meaning the faith is not just an intellectual adherence to them, but it is something that they have truly received by faith, by the grace of God. And they give testimony to that. And number three, holding to the mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience, they must hold these truths with a clear conscience. Which simply means this. They are not a hypocrite. The tenor of their life 
reflects the glorious gospel of grace and mercy. And they live a life worthy of the Christian calling. We see a reflection of Jesus and the evidences of God's grace in them. Brothers and sisters, we need deacons who serve tables knowing the menu because they know God's word and they model it with a clear conscience in their servants to Christ's church because deep down they know that they have experienced the great, glorious grace of God. The third qualification is that a deacon must be tested, verse 10. A deacon must be tested in order to see and show that they are blameless. Oh, brothers and sisters, how the church has been damaged by a deacon who has had no business being a deacon. I've seen churches appoint deacons who had no other qualification of being a deacon than being just a man that showed up to church enough times. And the the ignoring of the king's standards, the church has paid an enormous price. The church must see potential deacons as being those who either have been tested or being tested or need to be tested. No question, hear me on this, that as a deacon, there will be great joy in serving the body of Christ. But there will be great times of struggle where you'll question your desire to be a deacon. It will test you. Serving tables will test your people's skills. It will test your dignity. It will test your resolve. It will test your self-respect. Because not everyone will be happy and joyful that you are there to serve them. And if deacons are not tested, and and we are asking rookies to step in and do hard things, to do things that they are not prepared to do, then there will be failure. This testing will look different, brothers and sisters. It'll look different in every church. It's pretty ambiguous there, isn't it? Test them. Well, wait, what does that mean? Multiple choice? Fill in the blank? Write a paragraph? Write a paper? It looks different in every congregation. In our church, especially in our young body, I think testing for the most part we have already seen happen around us. Meaning each of us should ask ourselves about a person who could potentially be a deacon. This very important question. Are they already deaconing? And if they are, in what ways? How are they deaconing? And certainly these are questions that the elders will be asking, but they are questions that you as well need to be asking. And yet through much testing and thoughtful and careful evaluations of a man's life that we may determine if they are blameless. It's not necessarily about time or about trial periods as it is about those who are already deaconing. The fourth and last qualification is that deacons lead their homes. We see that in verses 11 and 12. Now, for some reason, these verses have have become complicated. They've been made complicated. Out of all the qualifications, this is the one that I think most people have questions about. But again, if we keep the main point here, the main point, that a deacon's godliness begins and it is played out in their closest of relationships, and that is in their home. The complication with these verses is when we become to take one word here or two words there, and we begin to ask questions. Well, what does that exactly mean? One of those questions would be this, and that is, Can women serve as deacons? Is that what he's saying here? Or should he be saying that here? In verse 11, it says this. It says their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders. Here's these words, right? These words we've already heard. 
dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded. Not addicted to much wine. Do you hear that? Faithful in all things. Now, the, the phrase at the beginning, their wives likewise, could also be translated just as easily, not wives, but women likewise. Just as easy. It's the same, same word, same, same lingo, right? It's the same Greek there. Women likewise, which then that could mean that maybe the Apostle Paul is shifting from speaking about deacons who are men to deacons that are women, shifting from deacons to deaconess. So this implies that there could be deacons along with these same kinds of qualifications. And I have to tell you from good arguments, from good churches that I've read, that have a solid plurality of elders, they have good scriptural evidence and context that can back that up. And they have appointed, and they have deaconesses. However, it's like a term, a pin drop. What's he going to say next? However, I believe that the plain reading of text here is correctly interpreted by our uh, translators and editors, particularly here in the ESV, in verse 11, meaning when it says wives instead of women. And I think the reason why, because of the immediate context of verse 12, is where Paul clearly is speaking of men. Because, as we know as Christians, we know this as our worldview, we know this from the Bible, we know this from obvious evidence that we are not suppressing that only men can be husbands. Not all this other goofy garbage that's happening around us. So we can take, I think, on face value, very clearly that Paul speaks of men, only can be of husbands, and therefore deacons are men. So verse 11, I think you can translate it either way. Gune, which is women or wives, can mean either way, but I think our translators have gone it right according to the immediate context of verse 12. And now the question or the argument then would be, well, does this devalue the worth? Does this devalue the essence of women in the church that they have literally no place to lead or to have any kind of uh, official role of the church? And I would answer that question as this, is that absolutely not? Men and women, they are created equally and distinctly in the image of God. He has loved a people that is made up of men and women, and he has died for his elect, which is made up of men and women throughout the ages. The church is made up of men and women. And yet in our relationships, God has created distinct roles. You see, there are distinct roles all over creation. In the ocean, there are fish. Above the ocean, there are seagulls. And fish have a job, and fish can swim, and fish can breathe underwater. Fish can do so much, unless Patrick hooks them, then they can't. They're done. And then you have the freedom of the seagulls that are flying freely and going wherever they want, and they have a role and job according to creation that God has determined. So would any of you say that the seagull is anything less of essence and value according to creation that God has given? And that answer to that question should be an absolutely no. The travesty is when seagulls try to be fish or when fish try to be seagulls. And when we confuse these roles, when we confuse these things that God has created distinctly, is when there's problems. When a seagull tries to become a fish too long, what happens to the seagull? They die. Or if a fish tries to become a seagull, what happens to the fish? They die. In my home, I am not only husband, but I am also father. And my wife is mother. 
watching my wife carry children and having children and raising children and nurturing them in ways that I never could. It is glorious. It is, and I say glorious not because of her, because of what God has done. I did not birth these children. I was there. I couldn't nurture them in the ways that she is able to nurture them and care for them in the ways that she could care for them. But what I ask you, and this is where our culture again has messed up so badly, is there any difference in the essence of my worth and value to my wife because I can't bear children. No. And I use these illustrations to say to you that there are distinct created roles that God has given. And when we buck up against this, we have seen it in churches so much that when seagulls try to become fish, it is an absolute disaster. And then when you just look at verse 11, I mean, clearly, verse 11 is saying what about these women? He is speaking of their great quality, isn't he? He is speaking of their great dignity, that they are sober-minded and faithful in all things, which means these women, these wives, they are vitally important and necessary to the body of Christ. So for you to devalue your role in this way, to try to become something that God has not created you to be, is to usurp that, to say that I know better. Because God has already said, this is how you can become a great joy to your church. Be dignified, be sober-minded, be faithful in all things. And deacons, if, if married... They will match the qualities. They match the qualities of their husbands, don't they? These deacons' wives do. And I would say this absolutely necessary to the body of Christ. Any clarity to that verse then for us? I hope so. Because verse 12 goes on. And he says, let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, the husband of one wife literally means this, and I, and I think it could be and should be translated this way. It means that they are a one-woman man. And, and, and there seems, again, this kind of this ambiguity. What, is, what does that mean? Does that mean that unmarried men are excluded from being a deacon? Does that mean men who have remarried even though their spouse has died? Or what about divorce? The ambiguity, though, is not to confuse us, but I think it actually... It guides us, and it's showing us that faithful, monogamous relationships is the general rule here. However, I think also to exclude unmarried men from the office, I think would contradict the apostolic approval of celibacy under certain, condi certain conditions. Though may not as useful in some areas, not having a wife, not able to help in certain ways. We just talked about that. But certainly, as the Apostle Paul has said, in other ways, they would be very useful to the diaconates. Says remarriage, if a spouse passes away, prohibit a man from serving as a deacon. And I think not, because after all, widows are encouraged to remarry for their own good. And again, the general rule is faithful, monogamous relationships, marriages. The other question simply is this, of what about divorce? And the only simple way to answer that question right now in the light of time is to say that I believe that it depends upon the situation of divorce. Does the divorce violate the qualifications of a one-woman man? And I'll leave it at that. Marriage faithfulness and purity. 
is the proving ground for the church, the testing of the church, an area that we can look for testing, but also in their, as, a, as their, their children. Are they giving biblical, spiritual leadership to their children as well? And I believe that both of these passages are, are saying that if a man is leading their household well as a godly husband and as a, as a godly father who shepherds his family according to the word of God, then they are qualified. And again, we have to say this, that a, a parent, no matter, no matter who they are, they do not have the power to make their children to become Christians. They do not have that ability, but they do have the responsibility of piling the kindling of God's word and God's grace and faith and the scripture around their child and praying faithfully that God would ignite that fire to be ready to be made alive according to God's will. Now, those are the qualifications. Those are the four qualifications that we see listed here by King Jesus who is who tells us who we can appoint as deacons accordingly. I think they're pretty simple. I think they're pretty clear. But as we finish this morning, I want to give you three important statements about these qualifications and our church. Number one, these standards are indispensable. These standards are indispensable. I cannot stress that enough. You know, there are faithful men right now in our church, and of course we all know, that I know that they aspire to the holy and noble task of either an elder or a deacon. And I want to tell you that as a church, that that is a wonderfully glorious thing, isn't it? That they desire this noble task to be an elder or a deacon. And all of us who are church members, we should be so grateful to God that there are actually men who desire to serve and to desire to serve tables. They desire to lead or shepherd or oversee the church of Jesus Christ. And I know in them that they, they also understand, they, they struggle with the qualifications, not that they're disqualified in some way, but they understand the, the weight and the gravity and the importance of these qualifications. They themselves do not dismiss them at all. In fact, they are the most picky, the most introspective of their own hearts, testing their hearts often of them. And we should encourage them, even if you don't know who they are, you should encourage our men to become elders and to become deacons. You should pray for them you should build them up in the Lord as, as God guides them in the timing. Do not stifle them. Do not tell them to sit down. Encourage them in that noble task. However, aspiration and desire, as, as wonderful as they are and required as it is for such a noble task, does not trump the standards that the Lord has set because they are indispensable. Passion and desire and aspiration does not dispense of these qualities. You see right there in the text, in verse 8, in verse 9, in verse 11, there is a very simple word, dei. That's Greek for the word must or must be. And it's showing us over and over again that these are the qualities and the standards of the king. And these standards are indispensable, for they must be. They must be. They are directives of the necessity. And as the church, we cannot diminish, nor should we forsake or compromise, because that, brothers and sisters, would be the beginning of the end for such congregations. Unfortunately, we have seen this over and over again. Second, these standards are realistically obtainable. I know the danger in preaching this message. I know the danger of some of you men may feel like I've beat you down today. And if you have, I'm sorry. That is not the point. That is not the point of this message. But these things are realistically obtainable. 
It's easy to believe that, that this is a level of perfection or a place that none of us could ever attain to. Especially when you consider the, this word dignified. Who among us in every area and every facet of our lives and our hearts would truly live to that standard and say to that standard that I am dignified. And the only one as we know within our gospel message is Christ himself. Who among us has not had a little too much to eat? Who among us has not got angry or spoken or spoken out of turn? Yet these standards are not standards looking for perfect men to serve in all areas of their life, but rather to find a man where the tenor of their lives look as such. And the commands for such standards that we have been given, they are obtainable. If you are a man who is sitting here right now, and maybe you're questioning or believe that you're qualified or, or not, or you are convinced that maybe you're not qualified for something, even though there is no clear evidence of that, then brother, hear me. Thank you for your humility. Thank you for your humility, because in that, in that respect, it's almost like that's exactly what we're looking for or what the church should be looking for. And in that humility, guess what? You're going to need it in serving tables. But brother, do not let that humility turn into a pride that says that the work of God in your life is not leading you to serve, or for that matter, to be an elder in the church. Because that is wrong. That is pride. Do not let that humility quietly turn into a subversive pride that says that dis, dis, uh, discounts the work of Christ in your life for years that he has been doing in you. But I also want to speak to the man who says to these qualities, I'll never be that. That's a perfection that I'll, I'll never be. These things are way too hard. Then I ask you to, are you not regenerate? Men, are you not regenerate? Are you not indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Then I challenge you, man to man, I challenge you, grow up. Grow up in maturity, in manhood, and quit playing games. Quit playing games. I don't know if you see the world around us. The games are done. The church needs men. Man, I'm yelling a lot these days. The church needs men. Mature men. That'll stand in the places that they were created to stand and hold the wall with the shield of faith. Stop playing games. Stop telling the Holy Spirit that he can't do that in your life. Stop holding on to that sin. Stop it. The odd, and the odd reality about all of these standards for all of us is this, is that these things are so ordinary, aren't they? Who among us is not called, called to be dignified? Who among us is not called to, to be sober-minded? And not given into drunkenness? There's... There, there's nothing here that any one of us, man or woman, we should not be striving to walk daily in by the grace of God together. And the third standard is this. These standards are predominantly ethical. They're predominantly ethical, meaning talents, giftedness, knowledge, skills, wisdom, practical things, man, they are important and they will somewhat become necessary as a deacon. But you don't have to know everything or have a complete set of tools to be a deacon, but in some of those roles, those things might be helpful. But when you consider and you look at these qualifications, none of them says that you have to be a skilled contractor. None of them says you have to be a master plumber or cook or etc., etc., whatever that may be. They show us one very clear, very clear thing is this, is that the ethics, the morals by the grace of God in the man's life are what is priority over anything else. 
So brothers and sisters, we began with the question, we end with the question, who can serve? And those that can serve are those who are qualified according to the king's standards. And But as we close, we look at the last verse there in verse 13. It says, for those who serve well as deacons, as deacons gain a good standing themselves and also great confidence in the faith as that is in Christ Jesus. That is a verse we are going to spend some time unpacking next week. But this verse sums up for us the benefit and the joy of a church that has qualified deacons. And when we see them, and we appoint them, and we set them apart who are qualified, we will receive such joy. And remember that the point of all of this, the end in itself, is not just faithful, qualified deacons. The end goal itself is that Jesus Christ, our King, would be glorified in all things. Not just because we are obedient to Him, but also in our sanctification as a church, that we are growing together in the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and we are growing in maturity in the stature of the fullness of God in Christ. And that we are growing together in Christ. And that we are building one another up in love. And all of God's people said,